0: Hello, you're listening to the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. My name is Aidan Flax-Clark. I work at the library and share some of our cultural programming with you on this show. On today's episode, Jasmine Ward, live at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. She was there to talk about her latest novel, Sing, Unburied Sing, which she did with Lisa Lucas, the executive director of the National Book Foundation. Listeners to this show will remember from our June episode with Janet Mock what a fantastic interviewer Lisa is. And it was especially appropriate for her to speak with Jesmyn Ward, since Jesmyn Ward is a winner of the National Book Award in Fiction, in 2011, for her second novel, Salvage the Bones. Sing Unburied Sing was just longlisted for the same award this year. The novel has been called staggering, lush, lonely, and racked up comparisons to William Faulkner, Toni Morrison, and Flannery O'Connor. But honestly, I don't really want to tell you much more about it. I'm a pretty obsessive reader of novels, and I've decided recently that the less I know about a book before I start it, the better— Especially when it's a writer like Jasmine Ward, who you know, at the very least, is going to give you something that you're better for having read. So, whether you like it or not, I'm going to implicate you in my reading strategy. But don't worry, Ward helps set the scene for the book, and she reads a bit from it at the beginning. And of course, she and Lisa Lucas talk about it, because that's what they're there to do. So it's not like you know nothing. Just enough that, if you're like me, you're going to walk away from this conversation kind of dying to read this one as quickly as you're able. Which, by the way, you can do through the Library's Simply E app. Or, of course, by visiting your local branch. And real fast, before I let you go, I wanted to ask that if you enjoy this episode and haven't subscribed to the New York Public Library podcast yet, head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen, and subscribe now. And if you already are a subscriber, why don't you go visit those review sections and give us some stars and say something nice? It helps the show, not to mention our self-esteem. Okay, here's Jasmine Ward, who's joined after her reading by Lisa Lucas. Hi y'all.
1: Um, first of all, thank y'all for coming. Um, it's good to see all of you here. Um, second, uh, this is my first time at the Schaumburg, so I guess I, you know, would like to say thank you to everyone who brought me here and made this happen. Um, I uh, I hope that I get to return, so I have some time to look around and explore. Um, I figured that I would read just a little bit from Sing, uh, Unburied Sing. Um, I, so, uh, just to give you a little bit of context, um, the novel is, uh, it is about uh, a family, right? Um, the, one of the narrators of the novel is a 13-year-old boy named Jojo. Um, he's mixed race. His mother is Leonie. She's the other narrator of the no- one of the other narrators of the novel, and she is black. Um, Jojo is being raised by Leonie's parents, uh, Pop and Ma'am. And uh, at the beginning of the novel, um, we find out that uh, Michael, who is Jojo's father is in Parchman Prison, which is a real place. Um, Parchman Prison is like the Mississippi State Prison. So Michael is in Parchman Prison, and um, we find out that the family is gonna take a road trip to go pick up Michael, um, because he's being released from Parchman Prison. So I'm just gonna read a little bit um, from uh, Jojo's uh, perspective, right? Uh, And then I'll read a tiny bit from Leone's perspective, but I'll let you know uh, when I'm switching from one to the other. So uh, this is Jojo. And the novel begins on his birthday. He's 13. He's turning 13. Usually the singing is my favorite part of my birthday because the candles make everything look gold and they shine in MAM's and Pops' faces and make them look young as Leonie and Michael. Whenever they sing to me, they smile. I think it's Kayla's favorite part too because she sings stutteringly along. Kayla's making me hold her because she cried and pushed at Leonie's collarbone and reached for me until Leonie frowned and held her out to me, said, here. But this year, the song is not my favorite part of my birthday because instead of being in the kitchen, we're all crowded into Mam's room. And Leonie's holding the cake like she held Kayla earlier, out and away from her chest like she's gonna drop it. Mam's awake, but she doesn't really look awake, her eyes half open, unfocused, looking past me and Leonie and Kayla and Pop. Even though Mam's sweating, her skin looks pale and dry like a muddy puddle, dried to nothing, after weeks of no rain in the summer. And there's a mosquito buzzing around my head, dipping into my ear, veering out, teasing to bite. When the happy birthday song starts, it's only Leone. She has a pretty voice, the kind of voice that sounds good singing low, but sort of cracks on the high notes. Pop is not singing, he never sings. When I was younger, I didn't know because I have a whole family singing to me. Ma'am, Leonie, and Michael. But this year, when Ma'am can't sing because she's sick and Kayla makes up words to the melody and Michael's gone, I know Pop isn't singing because he's just moving his lips, lip syncing, and there's no noise coming out. Leonie's voice cracks on Dear Joseph and the light from the 13 candles is orange. No one but Kayla looks young. Pop is standing too far out of the light. Ma'am's eyes have closed to slits in her chalky face and Leone's teeth look black at the seams. There's no happiness here. Happy birthday, Jojo, Pop says, but he's not looking at me when he says it. He's looking at ma'am, at her hands loose and open at her sides, palms up like something dead. I lean forward to blow out my candles, but the phone rings and Leone jumps, so the cake jumps with her. The flames waver and feel hotter under my chin. Pearls of wax drip onto the baby's shoes. Leonie turns away from me with the cake, looking to the kitchen, to the phone on the counter. You gonna let the boy blow out his candles, Leonie? Pop asks. Might be Michael, Leonie says, and then there is no cake because Leonie's taken it with her to the kitchen, set it on the counter next to the black corded phone. The flames are eating the wax. Kayla shrieks and throws her head back. So I follow Leonie into the kitchen, to my cake, and Kayla smiles. She's reaching for the fire. The mosquito that was in Mam's room has followed us, and he's buzzing around my head, talking about me like I'm a candle or a cake, so warm and delicious. I swat him away. Hello, Leonie says. I grab Kayla's arm and lean into the flames. She struggles, transfixed. Yes, I blow. Baby, Leonie says. Half the candles gutter out. This week, she says. The other half eating wax to the nub. You sure, Leone says. I blow again, and the cake goes dark. The mosquito lands on my head. So scrumptious, he says, and bites. I swat him, and my palm comes away smeared with blood. Kayla reaches. We'll be there, Leone says. Kayla has a handful of frosting, and her nose is running. Her blonde afro curls high. She sticks her fingers in her mouth, and I wipe. Easy, baby, easy. Michael is an animal on the other end of the telephone, behind a fortress of concrete and bars, his voice traveling over miles of wire and listing sun-bleached power poles. I know what he is saying, like the birds I hear honking and flying south in the winter, like any other animal. I'm coming home. So now I'm switching to uh, Leone's point of view. And, um, She is hanging out with a friend of hers named Misty, and uh, this is, you know, after the end of JoJo's birthday gathering, and she is getting high. Um, And something that you find out a little earlier in the chapter is that she had a brother who died when he was young, and his name was Given. So... I bent to the table, sniffed, a clean burning shot through my bones, and then I forgot. The shoes I didn't buy, the melted cake, the phone call, the toddler sleeping in my bed at home while my son slept on the floor, just in case I'd come home and make him get on the floor when I stumbled in. Fuck it. Ecstatic, I said it slow, sounded the syllables out, and that's when Given came back. The kids at school teased Given about his name, One day he got into a fight about it on the bus, tumbling over the seats with a husky redhead boy who wore camo. Frustrated and swollen-lipped, he came home and asked Mama, Why y'all give me this name, Given? It don't make no sense. And Mama squatted down and rubbed his ears and said, Given because it rhymes with your papa's name, River. And Given because I was 40 when I had you. Your papa was 50. He thought we couldn't have no kids, but then you was given to us. He was three years older than me, and when him and Camel Boy went flipping and swinging over the seat, I swung my book bag at Camel and hit him in the back of the head. Last night, he smiled at me, this given not given, this given that's been dead 15 years now, this given that that came to me every time I snorted a line, every time I popped a pill. He sat in one of the two empty chairs at the table with us and leaned forward and rested his elbows on the table. He was watching me, like always. He had mama's face. That much, huh? Misty sucked snot up her nose. Yep, I said. Given rubbed the dome of his shaved head, and I saw other differences between the living and this chemical figment. Given, not given, didn't breathe right. He never breathed at all. He wore a black shirt, and it was a still mosquito-ridden pool. What if Michael's different, Misty said. He won't be, I said. Misty threw a wadded-up paper towel she'd been using to clean the table. What you looking at? She said. Nothing, I said. Bullshit. Don't nobody sit and stare for that long on something this clean without looking at something. Misty waved her hand at the Coke and winked at me. She tattooed her boyfriend's initials on her ring finger, and for a second, it looked like letters, and then bugs, and then letters again. Her boyfriend was black, and this loving across color lines was one of the reasons we became friends so quickly. She often told me that as far as she was concerned, they were already married, said she needed him because her mother didn't give a shit about her. Misty told me once that she got her period in fifth grade when she was 10 years old and because she didn't realize what was happening to her, her body betraying her, she walked around half the day with a bloody spot spreading like an oil stain on the back of her pants. Her mother beat her in the parking lot of the school. She was so embarrassed. The principal called the cops. Just one of the many ways I disappointed her, Misty said. I was feeling it, I said. You know how I know you lie, she said. How? You get dead still. People's always moving all the time, when they speak, when they quiet, even when they sleep. Looking off, looking at you, smiling, frowning, all of that. When you lie, you get dead still. Blank face, arms limp, like a fucking corpse. I ain't never seen nothing like it. I shrugged, giving not giving shrugs. She ain't lying, he mouths. You ever see things, I say. It's out my mouth before I have a chance to think it. But at that moment, she's my best friend. She's my only friend. What you mean? When you're on, I wave my hand like she'd waved hers moments before at the Coke, which was now just a little sorry pile of dust on the table. Enough for two or three lines more. That's what it is? You seeing shit? Just lines like neon lights or something in the air. Nice try. You try to switch your hands and everything. Now, what you really seeing? I wanted to punch her in the face. I told you. Yeah, you lied again. But I knew this was her cottage, and when it all came down to it, I'm black, and she's white, and if someone heard us tussling and decided to call the cops, I'd be the one going to jail. Not her. Best friend and all. Given, I said. More like a whisper than anything, and Given leaned forward to hear me slid his hand across the table, his big knuckled, slim boned hand toward mine, like he wanted to support me, like he could be flesh and blood, like he could grab my hand and lead me out of there, like we could go home. Misty looked like she ate something sour. She leaned forward and sniffed another line. I ain't an expert or nothing, but I'm pretty sure you ain't supposed to be seeing nothing on this shit. She leaned back in her chair, grabbed her hair in a great sheaf, and tossed it over her back. Bishop loves it, she said of her boyfriend once. Can't keep his hands out of it. It was one of the things she did that she was never conscious of, playing with her hair, always unaware of the ease of it, the way it caught all the light, the self-satisfied beauty of it. I hated her hair. Acid, yeah, she continued. Maybe meth, but this, no. Given, not given frowned, mimicked her girly hair flip and mouth. What the fuck does she know? His left hand was still on the table. I could not reach out to it, even though everything in me wanted to do so, to feel his skin, his flesh, his dry, hard hands. When we were coming up, I couldn't count how many times he fought for us on the bus, in school, in the neighborhood, when kids taunted me about how Pop looked like a scarecrow, how Mama was a witch, how I looked just like Pop, like a burnt stick, raggedly clothed. My stomach turned like an animal in its burrow again and again, seeking comfort and warmth before sleep. I lit a cigarette. No shit, I said. Thank you.
2: All right. Um, So I was joking earlier with Jasmine that I was going to say, so what is it like to write (laughs) novels and be black? That's my first question. But that's a joke. And I will not actually ask you that question. Um, So, I thought this book was stunning and it's incredible to hear you read it and to hear your voice communicating what you've written and it's just so powerful and it's actually different than the way that you communicate, talking to you is so different from listening to you read. So, I guess the first question is, do you feel like, do you, where does the voice come from? Like, where does that powerful voice come from as a writer? Do you feel like you're aware of it? Um, is it something that you work hard on? Is it something that you feel like you started to be able to command more and more? Mm-hmm. Because it's really tremendous. We were in the wings and I was talking to Kevin and he, we just said, she's so good. And it's just such an incredible, unique voice. Thank you. I um,
1: I don't know. I mean, I, it, I guess I have a, a contradictory answer because I feel like it is something that I've worked on and worked very hard to develop, mm-hmm. um, because you know I, I read a lot, I read as much as I can, and then you know I, I sort of figure out what I like about what I like and what I don't like about what I don't mm-hmm. like, and then I try to incorporate some of that, I think, into my work. Um, and I am always like very aware of um, of my language, of my figurative language, of the rhythm of my sentences and my lines, and that's something that I, you know, that I do. I work I work on. Um, but at the same time, and this is why my answer is contradictory, I often when I write in the first person, I often feel as if the character, you know, whose voice I'm like writing in is next to me. Mm-hmm. And they're telling me. Whatever you know, like they're telling me their story, and I am putting it down. Even though I, I feel that way, even though I know you know that this is something that I am doing and that I'm working very hard to do. But but I feel like I hear them mm-hmm. sometimes.
2: Could you always write like that? Does that like when you first started telling stories and you first discovered that kind of writing in the first person? No. So no. that's something that came. How do you feel like yeah. you got there?
1: I I wrote in the third person and and. Um, And I felt uneasy the entire time that I was doing so. Like Mm -hmm. I just, I was like very aware that I was the narrator, I Mm -hmm. guess, when I was writing in third person, and it just felt uncomfortable. I I think because I didn't, you know, because I was learning how to write. Right. I mean, I wrote in the third person in my first novel, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what my what my voice would be, Mm -hmm. and so I think that that like beginning like that. And just I was just very uncomfortable because I didn't know I didn't know what my voice was like. I didn't know who I was. I didn't mm-hmm. know you know like what the rhythm of my sentences and would sound like. I didn't know I don't I, I, I knew none of that. Um, and so yeah, so I was uncomfortable when I wrote in, in third person. And and one day, um, it, I, the first time that I wrote in first person was when I wait was when I discovered Skeeter and China and Big Henry in a writing exercise that I was doing mm-hmm. in a class that I was actually, ta- an imitations class, where one of the writers who we had to read and imitate was William Faulkner. Mm-hmm. And so we would like, read and imitate them by doing these writing exercises, right? And I was like, casting about for an idea to complete this writing exercise, and those three characters still popped into my head. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, when I began to write about them, you know, with the exercise, I wrote from the first person, Mm -hmm. and there was something about it that seemed very natural to me. I guess maybe it was I just felt more comfortable because, um, because because I wasn't uh, because I wasn't so anxious about who I was and Mm -hmm. what I was saying. Do you
2: feel like you're very empathetic in general? Yes. Because it feels like that's part of the skill, to be able to really say, okay, I see you sitting there, and actually, what would you be thinking? Yeah. You know, it's part of a way of being yeah. as much as it is a part of communicating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, with the
1: kind of writing that I do, I think that that kind of empathy is necessary.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Why? But, well, because, because you're right, right? You have to, um, you have to, Inhabit your characters, right? Mm -hmm. You have to feel what they feel. You have to see as they see, perceive as they perceive, and attempt to think the way that they think, react the way that they would react. Mm -hmm. Um, And and because so much of my writing is concerned with, um, you know, it revolves around like people and, you know, and how, you know, these very like complicated people are attempting to like make their way through this sometimes very harsh world. Mm I feel like I have to have that empathy for them in order to.
2: But if you're feeling everything that they're feeling, I mean, thank you for feeling it, Mm -hmm. and thank you for writing it. But um, you said in an interview a while back um, that you were you realized that you weren't being tough enough on your Mm -hmm. characters, and that you were you were gonna. And I'm paraphrasing, but if you were gonna reflect home Mm -hmm. accurately, and you were gonna focus on home and tell these really stories, you had to like let people go through some things. You had to let people suffer. Yeah. But if you're empathi- if you're feeling everything what does that mean this book is is very everything that you've written has been very challenging mm-hmm. in terms of just the absolutely very real representation of human pain mm-hmm. and struggle and family yeah. and complications but you know but there's so much yeah. what is it like to write these characters i mean i felt really emotional mm-hmm. actually throughout this okay. book um, i actually read it twice back to back i think i told you mm-hmm. And it was because I just was feeling very emotional about what was happening to everyone in the historical references, but what, for you as a writer, what does that feel like? I mean, I'm just reading. It it, it, it does. It feels, you feel uncomfortable because,
1: um, because, you know, because you want, as a writer, like, you know, I was writing about Jojo and I wanted to save him. Like, I just wanted to find him and I wanted to put him in the car with me and I wanted to just leave. You know, I wanted to find Kayla, I wanted to pick her up and I wanted to take her away and nurture her. Um, And, you know, I wanted to ease, you know, make ma'am's pain ease, you know? And I wanted to, you know, provide some, you know, some, some rest for pop. You know, I wanted him to be able to sit down and just take it easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't, you know, like even though i I love my characters and I feel very strongly for them. I, f- I feel like I can't I can't I feel like if i if I spare them, you know, and if I do all these things that I want to do for them, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm tender towards them in in the narrative, um, by um, you know, uh, not letting awful things happen to them, mm-hmm. then I'm not being true to the kind of people that I'm writing about. I'm not being true to their the kind of lives that they lead. Yeah. Um, so I just you know, I just deal with it, but it, it can be.
2: yeah okay. is there a universe in which a book like this saves a Jojo? I hope so. i how, hope how do happen. how do we get from sort of rendering these stories really accurately mm-hmm. and really lovingly, but also in a really clear-eyed mm-hmm. and, and true way, mm-hmm. sad though that may be, how does that, how do you think as a writer you can move beyond telling that story into a place where that story being told actually shifts a life,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or creates a better opportunity for somebody?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, I think there's real value in kids like, in people, period, but especially children like Jojo, finding books where Where they can see themselves, right? Um, And so I would imagine that perhaps, maybe my wish is that one day, day, you know, that that a kid finds this book. Who, you know, a kid who maybe feels unloved, who maybe feels neglected, who is sort of searching for something, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe he, maybe this kid feels just lonely, you know, at the root of it, right? and then maybe this kid finds, you know, finds Sing and reads it, and he he, he sees himself and Jojo, and maybe he feels a little less alone, mm-hmm. you know, because he sees that 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 th- this, you know, that what he is suffering, you know, what the reality that he's living, that is not just him, mm-hmm. and that there are others who are sort of living and struggling through the same thing. Um, I, I mean, that's yeah. my.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, I think it's 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 hard to imagine sort of how you get mm-hmm. a book to. The person that you want to yeah. have it most. It's yeah. an Interesting question. I, yeah. I asked you one I didn't have the answer
1: yeah. to. I mean I think, you know, I think that libraries especially libraries do a lot of really important work in that aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Because I was the kind of kid who, you know, my parents couldn't afford to buy me Lots of books when I was growing up, and so I was a library reader. You know, mm-hmm. the library at my school was really important. Local public library, a little less so because I had to get there, right? right. It was the next town over. But when I had the opportunity to go there, you know, you best believe I was, you know, picking up all yeah. the books I could
2: and checking yeah. them out. You and did so- a great <laughs> buy the book. The buy the book was like a plus. Yeah, There's you. a couple <laughs> things from that buy the book that I feel like are interesting to talk about. The first thing was just, um, you know. It's interesting how much you were talking about sort of becoming really interested in independent female heroines mm-hmm. um, and reading books like *Island of the Blue Dolphin* mm-hmm. or reading from the mixed, I can never say the name from the yeah. mixed-up files of Fra- Basil, <laughs> Basil E. Frank Frankweiler. Yep, Frank- 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 Weiler? yep. Yes. Frank- um, But you write a lot about men. Mm-hmm. I mean, you obviously write about women too. There's yeah. like this is a this is a real mix. But mm-hmm. you write a lot about about black men mm-hmm. and a white man in this mm-hmm. case too. Um, why do you think, um, how, does that, how does that work for you? Why do you think that telling the stories of men is so important when obviously you are identifying mm-hmm. with these young, strong characters that were women. Yeah. You're obviously you know, a woman who's a writer and you know, have very clear perspective on lots of political things.
1: Yeah. I think it's because of my brother, mm-hmm. honestly. My brother died when he was 19 years old. He was hit by a drunk driver, and the drunk driver wasn't, like, held, wasn't held responsible in mm-hmm. his death. That's part of what I was writing about in Men We Reaped, And so I honestly, I think that a lot of my, um, I guess my like obsession with telling stories about black men is because of my brother, Mm -hmm. you know, and because I'm, because he, because, you know, because he's always with me and I'm always thinking about him and um, wondering. Like given. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, mm. But I do I, I, one day I would love to write, and i've said this before too, so maybe you already know this if you don't now, I guess you might. Um, I actually want to write a children's or like middle grade book mm-hmm. one day, maybe a series. who knows, but i would i my hope is that if I get that opportunity that the heroine is a little girl mm-hmm. you know a little black girl right amazing um,
2: yeah, I would read it and i 'm not a child. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and you also just talked about reading really widely. Um, you read everything. Yes. Why do you read everything? Because
1: I like it all. I mean, it, it's not it, okay. That's not necessarily true. I mean, <laughs> there are some books that I that I dislike. Um, I can't recall any right now off the top of my head. But I, know I never say them exists, out loud. Right. It's good. <laughs> um, but I I read everything because you know, as I said, and in, in by the book article like. I feel like every book teaches me something. Every book teaches me something, mm-hmm. right? Um, every book fulfill, fulfills a need that I have as a reader. So mm-hmm. maybe when I'm reading something um, that is, you know, like not serious at all, total escapist, like total sort of fantasy, mm-hmm. right? Then that's what I need at that right. moment. I need to be able to check out and just enjoy. Experiencing a different reality, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You know, if I'm reading nonfiction, then there's something there that I need to learn. Um, So yeah, so that's why I, I, when I'm reading children's books, I really like to read uh, sort of middle grade, I guess, uh, middle school like kids' books because um, because I I actually feel like a kid again when I'm when Mm -hmm. I'm when I'm reading them.
2: And from a craft sense, I feel like you can learn a lot about plot yeah, from about reading plot. And yeah. and young people's literature. And, oh, yeah. Yep. Do you feel like it all informs your writing? Yeah. The kind I, of, like, yeah. whether it's romance. I mean, there's something to be learned from romance. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. You know, So I thought that was impressive. Yeah. And I think that... Um, you know, in your writing, Mm -hmm. you can sort of see that you're very broad. I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, in this book and in all of your work, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot going on, and it's always like hyper-layered. I was rereading the review Mm -hmm. of um, your last book, Mm -hmm. The We Mm Reaped. and it was interesting because it was like on one level, it could have been a memoir just about her life, but Mm -hmm. then it was also about this, and then it's also been everything is really layered, and stylistically it's really layered too. Mm Um, Do you think that that's changed from the first book to your, this is your third Mm novel, and then there's also a fourth book Mm -hmm. that was an anthology? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Yes, I do. I mean, I think, you know, my my belief is that I'm always growing as a writer, right? Mm -hmm. And that's my hope, right? I mean, long term, I just, I hope that I get better with like each book. And so, you know, in some respect, I think that's, again, is why I like to read so much Um, but I, but yeah, but so I think that, I think that as a writer, you know, who has matured from, you know, my first book to my first novel to this novel, like I, um, I don't know, I guess I'm, as I read more, I'm figuring out that stories can operate on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. I'm figuring out that stories don't always need to be bound by the time that, by the time that lapses, you know. Mm -hmm. That occur, that we spend like in a story right. that we can move through time. Right. You know, at the same time that we're moving through space. And and I wasn't necessarily thinking about all those things I think when I was a a, a younger writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I just I don't know. I've been working at it and working at it and working at it, and um, I've remained you know like I'm curious, and I think that that has helped.
2: Too. And you do move through time and space I mean, in a really incredible way. And I'm, I try not to spoil books <laughs> when we do these kinds of conversations, because you, hopefully you all read it if you haven't read it yet. It just came out yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you are rooted in, in home. Mm-hmm. Like, you are rooted firmly in place. Mm-hmm. So no matter how much you're moving through history, no matter how much you're moving through, you know, things that can't really necessarily happen, yeah. you're still staying in this one place Yes, um, that is much like, the place you are from, yes. although it is not the place you are yes. from. Yes. Um, why home? Why is that the place you come back to over and over again? You know, I, my,
1: when I first began attempting to write, like seriously, I was writing about home. Mm-hmm. Like that was the subject that that seemed most natural to mm-hmm. me, um, and. I feel like you know when I decided that I wanted to seriously you know try right to be a writer, that that one of the reasons that I wanted to be a writer was because I wanted to tell the the stories and the kinds of stories that I'd grown up mm-hmm. living and also hearing. Um, but I you know it's this book. Um, you know, it begins in, in Bois Sauvage, and it ends in Bois Sauvage, like in that in that small town. Thank you for saying it, so but I did not have to say I can't pronounce it. Can <laughs> but it? But it actually moves through Mississippi, too, right? As yes. the characters journey through Mississippi. So I feel like I stretched a little bit further afield, just a tiny bit this time. Um, the ne- my next novel will be, I think, more of a leap for me but i'm going to tell you this and you're going to you're going to tell me that i'm actually really not going eagerly or, you know you know to I'm really awaiting so this. <laughs> I'm I'm going to New Orleans like my next novel will be set in New Orleans so
2: <laughs> you know making big moves huge okay. yes. really really big distance <laughs> um, so it's like just sort of biographically right you grow up in a place and you leave and mm-hmm. you you know go to private school and then you go to Stanford and then you go get an MFA and like a lot of people actually that journey is just outward mm-hmm. people don't come back home people don't live in their rural hometown mm-hmm. they don't revisit it they leave behind it's not yeah. necessarily the thing that they want to stay with them you know why is like where like what is it about the place that you grew in that grew up in that, that's so compelling to you? There are two things. One,
1: well, the first thing is... And also um, thank you, because oh, I
2: think it's a good thing.
1: Thank you. Okay, good. There are three things, actually. Uh, not two things. Three things. The first is my family. Right? I have a really large family. I have, well, I mean, I have a, a good size like, immediate family, but my extended family is, like, mm-hmm. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like, just my my... Just my... Maternal grandmother's side of my family has over two hundred people in it. So when I say I have a large extended family, I have a really large extended <laughs> family. So my fa- that family it's brings a Small me town. Back. Yeah, it's a small town. We're like a fifth of the population. <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, my my family brings me back. Um, Makes dating hard. Yeah. <laughs> cousins, cousins make <laughs> dozens. That horrible saying. Um, <laughs> I don't do I'm that. sorry, I did that. Couldn't <laughs> <laughs> help it. Um, yeah, so I, so my family brings me back, and then my community, right? Um, which is like the part of the little where I live in is you know mostly black, mostly mm-hmm. poor and working class, right? Uh, that community brings me back, um, and then and then the landscape. You know, I, there's something about that landscape. You know the the actual earth, that the beauty of it. You know, I I was so homesick everywhere I went. Everywhere mm-hmm. I went, I was homesick and I was cold. <laughs> right? <laughs> I was yes, I was homesick and I was cold. And I would dream about. I'd have these very like vivid dreams about home mm-hmm. all the time when yeah. I was when I was away. I wanted to return back. You know, return so you know strongly. I just. I don't know. There's, so, there's something about like the the beauty of, of where I live
2: that speaks to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing. Um, so you're a, a part of a very rich literary tradition of Mississippi writers of Southern writers. Do you feel like Do you feel like a Mississippi writer? Do you feel like a Southern writer? I was I was talking to another author. Um, C.E. Morgan, who wrote The Sport of Kings, who's mm-hmm. Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And she was saying, like, I feel um, minimized by mm-hmm. the idea of being a regional writer, mm-hmm. as though my part of the world is not actually as big a part of the world as New York is mm-hmm. or as California is. And so I'm marginalized by being considered mm-hmm. a place that is that is a region that is other. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like that's different for you? Do you feel like you draw inspiration from being from that tradition?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, in part, I just, I think that, that's marketing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, um, I I love being where, you know, from. You know, I love being, um, from the south, right? Mm-hmm. I love being a black writer. I love being, you know, a writer, a, a, a woman writer. I mm-hmm. mean, I um, I love telling those stories, right. right? Um, so so it doesn't it doesn't bother me as much. Also, I feel like. You know when people label you, when people like use those labels, in part, I mean it's to help readers find you mm-hmm. right I mean, if they're looking for you know women writers, if they're looking for black writers, if they're looking for southern writers they're looking for you know black women southern writers or <laughs> black southern writers, right? I mean that's their, I mean it's easier you know to find you if they're able to if you know, if they're able right. to label your work but i'm'm mm-hmm. i I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm very aware of um of, of being part of, um, I'm very aware of the the writers who came before, right? Mm-hmm. So southern writers, um, uh, southern writers who are women, mm-hmm. bl- black southern writers, um, you know, uh, black women southern writers. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm, I'm and I'm and I'm proud to be a part of that, you know, of, of, of that of that line, right? Mm-hmm. I recently, um, I missed the Mississippi. Book Festival, but recently, um, the Mississippi Book Festival folks commissioned an artist to redraw the literary map, Mm -hmm. and they added me and Kiese Lehman to that map, that was one of the most exciting yeah. discoveries of my life. Mm-hmm. I saw that map and I saw my face down at the bottom, right above Lil and I was like, I was like, oh, I made it!
2: I, I made it. <laughs> that's I when you made on it. The yes, on the map. On the map. fair it. enough. Not when you won the national <laughs> <No>, award. <laughs> sorry. Yes. Not me. Just kidding. <laughs> no, um, <yeah. laughs> but uh, so there have been like some, also some like pretty seriously lofty. Since the beginning of your career, I mean, it's like we hear Faulkner over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. um, which is awesome. Yes, Um, Toni Morrison, Mm -hmm. Zora Neale Hurston. Yes, um, any others that I'm missing? People have been lobbying. You're stressing me out up here. Um, (laughs) Yeah, is that like is that a weight? Does that feel hard?
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. Can
2: I mean, you acknowledge, though, why you're getting those comps, too? Is it kind of nice as well? It is nice. It is nice. I mean, I think that, you know, that... They're not nice, but you ever realize, like, I'm actually, maybe I'm like, fuck. Yeah, me. just a little, you know, maybe when I'm just, uh, maybe when I've had a drink and I'm feeling extra confident. Good. <laughs>
1: like, well, look at me. But then that, I, you know, I sober up and that feeling passes. Um, but no, I can't. I, can. I mean, it, you know, I've, I've read... Um, you know, I've read all those people, right, mm-hmm. and, I, and I've loved their work and I've admired their work since I was really young, right, mm-hmm. since I was a teenager, and so, um, and, 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 and because I have admired their work, like, I know that when I was, you know, developing my own voice and my own style, like, here I am, like, you know, I'm imitating, right, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think some of that still whole you know is true right mm-hmm. um, because I'm imitating what I what I love right mm-hmm. because I'm taking it in and I want to I guess maybe remake it, maybe add my own um, add my own little tweaks to it and then yeah. and then put it out there.
2: Why do you love Faulkner?
1: I love Faulkner because because I think that his narrative style, um and the way especially that he tackles the first person mm-hmm. and multiple first person perspectives i think that he gives his characters such dignity you mm-hmm. know like such dignity he complicates them their their inner lives have such weight mm-hmm. and i love that mm-hmm. you know because the kind, the people that he's writing about they're poor they're uneducated and yet they say the most beautiful complicated you know like wonderful they, I mean they, they speak in there's they speak
2: in poetry mm-hmm. and I
1: love that I something about that really, Resonates, And it's challenging language when people yes. are speaking
2: lyrically, when people yes. are, when it's very poetic. And yes. I feel like that's the one ding you get sometimes. Yeah. I, mean, I always want to ding the person yeah. back and be like, dummy, <laughs> it's fine. It's yeah. beautiful <laughs> and complicated. I, and, I, I've, and I've attempted to change it
1: over the years, right? I mean, because I've been in multiple workshops where, you know, when I'm getting workshopped, right, and, and we get to the, the portion of the workshop where, where they're giving me hell, right? Mm-hmm. That's what they give me hell about, right? It's always my language and they like rip my sentences apart. and. Um, and rip my figurative language apart. Worked out. I can't I can't I can't change it. I can't change
2: it. That's how it I don't know, it's what I love, it's my heart, that's how it comes. So mm-hmm. that's and do you what it feel is. like it actually I mean, in some ways, like it's not how people speak in many ways. No, although yeah. you do you know, although listening to you read obviously yeah. is how we speak yeah. very much. But it's not how we live, it's mm-hmm. not how we look at the world. Yeah. Um, but it does feel like it actually makes you know, this technicolor world that, like, you, you can see with yeah. special, like, eclipse glasses. Yeah. Like, yeah. you can actually see what's happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it does feel more real. What other writers do you think that you wouldn't be without?
1: Um, uh, let's see. Of course, Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. Of course, Zola Hurston. Of course, Alice Walker. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Margaret Walker. Anne Moody, Richard Wright, James Baldwin. Um, who else? Carson McCullers. Mm-hmm. I really love her work. I love Annie Pooh. You were talking work. about
2: Carson McCullers, about the about the ability to to to, mm-hmm. to write dialogue. Yeah. But then yeah. also to yeah. really actually have this complicated yes. lyrical world around. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. I thought so it was so. a good point. Okay. Good. <laughs> so yeah, all those writers I I love. All, and I haven't listened any I love poetry. Mm-hmm. I do. So, I mean, there are, um, you know, many, when I was younger, I loved Edna St. Vincent Millay. I loved mm-hmm. Anne Sexton. I loved Sylvia Plath. I loved, um, uh, and of course, I'm like, I love, I actually love Louise Erdrich. I love her fiction, and I love her poetry, too. Mm-hmm. Um, Will you ever write poetry? I would love to, but I'm not. I, right now, I'm not any good at it. I mean, I, I feel like it's something I have such, such respect for. Mm-hmm. Poetry and for poets and for what they they can accomplish on the page. That I think that I'd need years to practice and practice and practice. See, this practice. is good
2: because at one point you said you were a failed poet, but this sounds more open to it. So I look forward to your children's <laughs> book as well as your collection of poetry, People keep, as well as your nonfiction, as well as your editorial experience on anthologies, as well as your novels. I'm People very keep excited asking about
1: me ab- about it, and because they and and when they ask me about it, they ask me about it in a very encouraging way. And so I think that's making me like rethink. How I thought about it's my working. my ability, right? Like, <laughs> so I'm like, maybe I can do it.
2: We're just gonna peer pressure you into becoming a <laughs> poet. Um, so this was a return to fiction, mm-hmm. or was it? Were you always writing in the meantime? It feels for us, right, like it's a return to fiction. Well, I, it is a return to fiction because when I'm working on a when I'm
1: working on a book length project, I can I can well when I'm working on a novel. I can only work on that novel. I can't work on that novel and another book at the same time. When I was um, so, I wrote *Salvage the Bones*. I attempted to write this novel, failed, mm-hmm. set it aside, and instead, that's when I wrote *Men Reaped*. And then after I was done with *Men Reaped*. I actually, for the first time, was worked on two longer projects at one time, so I was working on the fire this time, but mm-hmm. then at the same time, I was working on "Sing and Bird Sing." I think the only reason it worked is because "Sing and Bird Sing" is a novel, and mm-hmm. fire is a completely different thing,
2: right. Do you think your work is progressively more political in fiction and nonfiction as you as you go along? Yes, is that has that kept on. Because mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes I have people have a political moment where it's like you know I'm feeling it. I really mm-hmm. want to make sure that this is an impact. But then they're sort mm-hmm. of like I just want to tell like a smaller story
1: no I think, well, because I think but look at the world yeah
2: so. and then, and you know there's that that expression right personal is political
1: isn't is that what it, right. I mean and that's true right especially for black people in the <laughs> United States of America right and so and I and I, I feel like my work has to has to reflect that
2: right um, what do you think politically you were hoping to accomplish with this one um. And it doesn't have to be like a big, like I was hoping to change the laws regarding X, Y, and Z, but you're dealing with prison. You're dealing with, I mean, parchment is insane. I mean, in looking at the history of parchment. Yes.
1: I think, uh, you know, part of what I wanted to do with this one is that, I guess, uh, from the top of my head, I think think of two two different things. First, you know, as we're sort of having this discussion about how insane mass incarceration is in Mm -hmm. this country, like I want people... You know, when we're having that conversation, to think about, to think about the people who are imprisoned, and to see them as people, mm-hmm. right, and not this like anonymous mass of, I don't know, violent yeah. criminals, right. Um, so, so I wanted that to happen. And second, I want, I, when it happens, and we all know that it will happen again when the next kid dies or the next black man or woman dies by you know from police violence like i want people to see jojo i want people to see jojo's face like i want people to
2: you know to see to see a human being you know and you've got two you've got two little ones yes Little ones. What does it mean to be writing about the black family and like the black body and violence and poli- you know, all of these things, prison, I mean, all of these horrible things that are happening to us, you know, and to be raising two black children? I mean, does that change what you write? Does that change, you know, what you need to write?
1: Yes. I mean, I feel like it's made me more committed to, um, you know, to being political and to writing about the kind of people that I write about mm-hmm. um, and to writing about the place that I write about um but it's also it's tricky you know it's hard because because as as i'm writing you know about these things it's making me realize again and again like how unsafe my children are you know and and it's hard it's hard to you know my like when my you know, when, when I'm, so when I'm working, I'm in a room by myself. And then after I'm done working, my kids come in and then I have to like flip this switch, right? Where from this, um, from this place of like anxiety and, Mm -hmm. uh, and fear and depression and, um, and real grief to, um, to, to a place of like lightness and, you know, and and nurture, nurturing and, um, and caring and, and and loving, and it's and it's, it's it can be it can feel very surreal, right? In that moment when I'm like flipping that that switch, but because I can, I can flip that switch and 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 then you know provide for my children and, and and care for them and love them and nurture them, I think as I'm writing more, it's it's making me I don't know it's making me want to flee, and I don't know where I could flee to, yeah. but it is making me want to flee. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's what I was saying in the beginning. Just that idea of like sort of, you know, you have to channel other people's pain yeah. to be able to tell stories like this, to be able to really plumb the depths of what they are feeling. Yeah. And then you have to go back to being a mama, yeah. which is just, yeah. I mean, extraordinary. I mean, I, I don't, I can't actually understand what that's like. I'm not a parent, but it's, you know, it really is something. And I think that when you're dealing with the peril that our bodies are in and that our children's bodies are in, um, I think it is an enormous service to be able to tell these stories and to tell them well. Um, and then I hope lots and lots of people read them. Um, I think that our time has actually very quickly come to an end. Yes, that's um, But I think that we are going to invite people to the stage, to, or not to the stage, to the mics in the back. <laughs> come on up, it's the party. We'll dance off our pain from a moment ago um, to ask questions. Okay. Um, so if you want to actually walk up to the mic there or there right in the back. Um, Jasmine can answer some questions. Yeah?
0: Yep. Hi. Hi. Um, So, this is about the book. I've already read it. Okay. Um, And it's, (laughs) I didn't get it yesterday, don't worry. Um, I'm not that fast. I wanted to touch on a little bit because this originated um, in the Mississippi, Mississippi Delta lot, the root work and the hoodoo that you bring up in the book, which I thought was extremely exciting. I very rarely see that in fiction and probably never have. Mm-hmm.
2: So what's the question? Just, uh, oh, sorry.
0: <laughs> More about that and just did you have to research it? Is it something you grew up with maybe? Um, or in the community that you dealt with and how did you figure out to bring that into the writing? Mm-hmm.
1: I am, um, that, no, that's a good question. I, so, I, I've heard stories, you know, from my older family members. So, some, some from my dad, some from my grandmother um, about root work and about hoodoo and about voodoo. Um, you know, my, my grand, yeah, so I've heard lots of stories growing up. But, it's, it, when I was told those stories, um, you know, they, everything always took place in the past, right? And so, um, you know, my family is Catholic. Most of the black people that live in my community or who live in my community are Catholic. Um, and that tradition, you know, of voodoo and hoodoo doesn't seem to be as, um, as alive and as present anymore. And so I think that, um, that in some respects I wanted to write about it and sing because, it isn't as present, and I just I, I, I wanted to uh to make it present, I think. But because I you know as I said I only, I've only heard a couple of stories, and so I did. I had to do a ton of research, and it's hard to actually um, research um, you know voodoo and hoodoo because you know like you get a lot of it. It's a very um, you know there's a whole tour tourism. You know there's a lot of there's a Entire like tourism industry built around like New Orleans and voodoo and hoodoo, and so when I was like searching out sources, sometimes I'd find things that seemed to be tailored to, you know, to tourists, right? And and um, and you know, and and they were more about like I guess um, like outsiders' ideas of what voodoo and of what you know hoodoo are. Um, so I. Um, I I just, I read everything and some of the stuff was bad, but some of it was, you know, a lot of it was was good and was helpful. Um, But that, it was, um, I think another reason that I wanted to incorporate those spiritual traditions into the book um, is because I think that you know that in like the larger sort of popular in popular culture, you know, voodoo and hoodoo have been um, have been like demonized for so long, right? All the representations we see of voodoo and hoodoo um, are you know are really sort of dark and um, perverted. Whereas you know, as I was like researching it and finding out more about it, I mean, in part, like this th- these spiritual traditions helped us survive, mm-hmm. right? And um, and and I feel like that knowing that is important. and I didn't knew, I didn't know that before I began like doing the research for this book. And so I, I was hoping that, like, ma'am, who Ma'am was and what ma'am, you know how she teaches Leonie and what she teaches Leonie, I was hoping that that um, that the reader would begin to understand that, right? Like, understand the value of those spiritual traditions.
2: Do you feel like that sub-question? Do you feel like that's born out of your interest in the Bible and mm-hmm. your, you know, invocation of mythology? Yeah. Is this like a natural progression? I think so. I mean, of just sort of exploring yeah. all of the things spiritual that yes. we yes. inform our lives. Yeah,
1: I think so. I mean, I, I um, yes, I think so. I mean, one of the most fascinating things to me about Voodoo and who do it um, one of the most fascinating things about them is how they've sort of incorporated other mythologies mm-hmm. other uh, mythological figures other you know spiritual traditions and, and incorporated it into a new spiritual tradi- tradition you know mm-hmm. and sort of uh, so that it suits the practitioners I guess yes. so yeah that's fascinating to me Great.
2: Got another one up here. I have a a comment and question. Um, I represent a book club that's starting its 13th year. We're all blind and visually impaired. Um, We've read your two books. We love them. And we look forward to reading this most recent book. And we hope that it's on audio. And also, FYI, I'm sure you know that Toni Morrison um, did the reading for one of her most recent books, so, I hope you consider doing that, as well. <laughs> you guys.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
2: So, it looks like we are out of time, since you're standing there, so I just. Can I say this really quickly? It is on audiobook. Oh. Yeah, already. Next book. Oh, next book, okay, maybe. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to say thank you. Oh, thank for you. having this conversation. And also, like to shout a boots out. Because
0: look at our boots. In addition to the book and brain she's got on her boot, you're my hero. Okay, so, you dying to read this book? I am. I'm going to pick it up as quickly as I can. Jasmine Ward's latest novel, Sing Unburied Sing, is at your local NYPL branch, and you can get it through our Simply E app. And in the meantime, thanks again for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen.